HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Today's program has been brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and we are coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, January 17th, 2018. Happy New Year, everyone. This is our first show back in the new year and our 164th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is the one and only wine critic of the New York Times, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to know your worth. So the dictionary defines self-worth as the sense of one's own value or worth as a person. This means it comes from within and how you value yourself as a part of the world. So don't wait for others to define you, but instead define yourself. Consider your work experience, education, character, talent, and overall uniqueness, and then stand by it. Know what you bring to the table and never underestimate it. When you believe in yourself, others will too. And that is my tip today. Now I'm thrilled to have my guest in the studio with me. It is Eric Asimov. He is the wine critic for the New York Times. Eric has been writing for the Times for over 33 years. 
1992, he started the wildly popular 25 and Under food column, and in 2004, he became the Times wine critic. His columns today include Wines of the Times, The Poor, and Wine School, and he's published two books, How to Love Wine, a Memoir and Manifesto, and Wine with Food, Pairing Notes, and Recipes from the New York Times. I believe you also co-authored some books, too, so welcome. (laughs) I can't remember how many um, best restaurants of New York and... Right, twenty-five and under books. A lot. No, this yeah. this was this is your short, condensed bio. But um, you have quite an impressive career. And just I'm, means I'm old. No, no, it means that you're super talented. And I'm really honored to have you here on my show. I'm happy to be here, Sherry. <laughs> well, thank you. So I always like to start out with my guests and their background, and I so I want to know, like, did you set out to be a journalist? Did you go to school for journalism? Um, Well, um, my father was a journalist. He worked for 40 years at Newsday on Long Island. Okay. And so I never wanted to be a journalist. (laughs) (laughs) Unlike my my sister who went to journalism school um, and has worked for the San Francisco Chronicle for like 30 years, um, I never intended, I, I tried to be as far away from it as possible. I was going to be a, uh, an academic. I was in, in grad school in the, in the 80s. And I kind of chickened out because this was considered to be a very bad time for the liberal arts. And um, I thought, you know, I'll, I'm going to spend the rest of my life um, chasing jobs in places that I don't want to live in. And I thought, uh, I've got to reassess and do something else with my life. And I thought, uh, you know, I may as well earn some money while I'm doing that. And I thought I could get a job in journalism because I listened to my father at the dinner table for my entire childhood. And I, I got a job. Um, okay. Yeah. So, well, that's so, that's, that's, so you, I mean, it's for, for not wanting to do something, you've done quite well at doing it. Well, you know, (laughs) what happened uh, was that uh, I I was hired in, in Chicago and and worked there briefly. And and before a year was out, I got a job offer from the New York Times. Which is amazing. um, Which was kind of amazing. And I Uh went to work there as an editor in national news. And one of my first jobs there was to work nights, like 7.30 to, to 3 o'clock. And um, I was to uh, figure out everything that was in the newspaper. And once everybody else left at 11.30, I would sit there just in case something else happened or something needed updating or somebody died or, you know. Yeah. And... Most of the time, nothing happens, and it happened, and I just sat there, and I thought, well, how can I use this time better, and maybe even earn more money? And what I was really interested in was food and wine, even back then. And I thought, well, you know, I've got my days free, I can um, report during the day, and I can use that time in, in the middle of the night to, to write it up, and... Since I'm on staff here, I can just offer these stories to the food section, which back then was uh, called the living section, and get paid extra for those. And, and that's what I started to do. 
So you came up with this idea and you you pitched it to the New York Times, the Living section, and said, "Hey, right. I'd like to write." And this is this is the birth of the twenty five and under column. No, oh no, this is, uh, this is before this is quite that. a few years before okay. that. So I think that actually think the first thing I ever wrote about food was was about beer. Okay, um, because. You know, this was uh, in the mid '80s, and the, and the craft brewing right. thing was happening in the country, but not in New York so much. I mean, the East Coast was kind of the last um, area to to really be affected by it. So I I started thinking, you know, what what is nobody else covering? We had uh, Frank Pryle was the wine critic then, so. You know they uh, they didn't real they weren't going to let me write wine stories and uh, but beer was something I felt very at, at home at. I went to high school in the seventies and back then the um, the drinking age was eighteen, so I used to write beer reviews for my high school newspaper, which you know that was like very laissez faire back then and you know people would be horrified now <laughs> somebody would be fired and and you know yeah. It- it would be crazy. So you started. You wrote. You wrote about beer, right. and you wrote a bit about food too. But that at the time, at this time, the there was restaurant reviewer. Was this Brian Miller? Brian was the restaurant reviewer. Okay. Yeah, and um, uh, eventually I moved full time to the to the living section, and I had the idea. Not my original idea. A lot of people thought that that we ought to be covering inexpensive restaurants, um, you know, unconventional restaurants, all the the restaurants of of various ethnicities that were scattered around the city that we really didn't pay so much attention to because we had one restaurant reviewer who was, um, you know, very focused on the the big ticket restaurants. Mm -hmm. And... um, it helped my argument that this was a time, um, it seems very distant now, but that there there was really a kind of a newspaper war in New York City. Um, the Post and the news uh, were, were battling. There was a, a newcomer, New York Newsday, my father's newspaper, mm-hmm. um, started to, uh, they, they started a New York uh, edition, and they had... Um, Two people covering inexpensive restaurants in okay. New York, and uh, the Daily News had somebody doing it. And of course, uh, this was before Robert Sietzma started writing for the, um, uh, the Village, Village Voice. Voice, but yeah. he had this newsletter, Down the Hatch, that, right. that a lot of food people knew about. And it just seemed ridiculous that the Times was paying no attention to any of this. And and so I was put on a committee to decide what we should do about this. And I um, I volunteered to write a column myself. And to my surprise, they took me up on it. <laughs> and well. that, that was the beginning of... of uh, 25 and under in, I guess, 91. I think the first column appeared in 92. Well, it's, I mean, so much has happened. I'm thinking in the, how the, the papers changed, but that was like a huge change and, and something you brought and obviously were very good at writing that column. Well, I mean, this was pre-internet days 
and pre, yeah. <laughs> you know, remember hard to, that. Hard to ima- imagine um, what that is, that's like now, but yes, I remember. Pre-smartphone, pre pre-social mm-hmm. media. So the way of, there really wasn't, weren't ways of getting news out um, short of a, you know, a, a mainstream publication or something like, like Robert's newsletter, right. which he had to um, mail to people, yeah, you know, yeah. via snail mail. Yeah, thinking back how things have changed. So how did you make the transition from food to wine? Well, um, you know, wine was always something that uh, fascinated me. And um, I always I always drank a lot of, of it. <laughs> and But my, you know, I, I think my position was uh, as, as a consumer, uh, especially as a consumer with no money, you know, starting out as a as a college student and then a graduate student, um, you know. So I had a an, a bottoms up education rather than the the sort of top down education that might be common in the UK, where people go to Cambridge or Oxford and join the wine society and are exposed to all the you know, the great vintages that the seller, they've been collecting for for decades, if not centuries. Um, you know, for me, it was like, what can I afford? And I, <clears throat> I had to learn uh, about wine that way. So I was very self-taught. And then reviewing restaurants, I kind of used that time to um, accelerate the learning curve, Um you know, drinking. Yeah, wine well, it's it with goes. Food. Yeah, it goes together. So, was there was there an opening with with the wine well, critic position? You know, Frank Pryor was there, and um, but he was never really interested in in reviewing um, bottles of wine in the way that has become conventional in wine magazines. You know. Uh, the, the tasting notes and the scores and, and all of that. He thought that was ridiculous, and, and as do I. Mm-hmm. But um, my editor wanted a, uh, a column that would just sort of, of look at different sorts of wine and then recommend a half dozen bottles. And in 1999, she invited me to start writing that very small column called Tastings. Okay, so it started with one column. Yeah, so I started um, doing that, and I did it for um, a few years. And then um, Frank retired, and I was invited to take over for him, which I was thrilled to do. And well, I know it's an amazing opportunity, and you've, you've obviously excelled at it, but did you, did, when did you stop doing the food writing, or did that? And then 25 and under... Then, well, then. I, you know, I did um, 25 and under till um, uh, 2004, and so there was kind of an overlapping right. time where where I was doing both, and I was also um, sitting in from time to time for the other restaurant review, um, which I did again. You know, whenever whenever they're yeah. in between critics, they've they've right. asked me to to you know, temporarily do it while they figure out who the next person will be. Have you enjoyed doing that? Um, you, you know, I, I, think I, a, a hard, I enjoy, I always enjoyed doing it. I loved okay. doing it, but, um, you know, there were 
I got a little bit frustrated with the format of, of restaurant reviews. It was um, just speaking as a writer, it seemed like really limited and I wasn't creative enough to figure out ways to break out of what, um, you know, the, the boundaries seem to be. Yeah. Whereas um, with wine, uh, not only can you take that in any direction, I mean, you're, you're writing about culture and politics and economics and, and the wine itself and, and winemaking and personalities and, and so on. But I felt like, I felt as if I had a lot to say that wasn't being said at the time, whereas, you know, my restaurant reviews felt to me just to be somewhat conventional. Okay. Maybe maybe well done, but but conventional. Okay, that's a good explanation. Um, I'd love to, to we're going to take a break, and then we're going to dive into more of all these columns you write today, because... Man, you're a busy guy. You have a lot going on. <laughs> it's better that way. <laughs> so um, stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Eric Asimov. He's the wine critic at the New York Times. So... Eric, you write today, you have your, your columns, you have Wines of the Time, Wines of the Times, Wine School, The Poor. You probably write other columns or other, other things beyond that too. So, so let's talk a little bit about, about these columns and how do you come up with your content? And I mean, you're saying like it's never, it's endless with wine, but it feels like how do you, how do you find your way in, in what you're, you know, in what you're covering? Well, um, the three columns, um, those are those are the three columns. Okay. The uh, Wines of the Times is kind of a, um, uh, uh, we have a uh, wine panel, um, and I have three guests, Florence Fabricant, so and usually two people outside of the uh, paper, often sommeliers or retailers or importers who, who join us and we do some blind tastings and and talk about the wines and and that comes out once a month. Okay. Uh, also, once a month, I do a a column called Wine School, and this um, comes out of a a pre high speed internet idea that I had that the best way to learn about wines was to was simply to to drink a lot of different wines and and keep track of them. To do it at home with food and and not in some sort of, you know, uncomfortable tasting environment where you're trying to, um, you know, discern esoteric aromas and flavors. But just, you know, drink it with dinner and then just think about whether you liked it or not and why. And, um, 
you know, once we became a kind of a more uh, digitally oriented newspaper, um, I had the idea of, of doing this um, myself in sort of a, a um, back and forth with readers. I would recommend uh, some wines each month, a particular genre, and uh, readers would would get those wines, and over the course of the month, um, we'd all drink them and then reconvene and and talk about them in the in the forum of a newspaper column. That's great. And yeah. so that's been um, really fun, and I think it's um, you know it's got a pretty good following, although it, uh, it sometimes it's disappointing to me that it's oh, there's like a hardcore number of people who comment publicly on the column but then there's this other whole contingent of of people who are emailing me or calling me about it but that must be a lot to be managing or monitoring all these comments and I mean, well, on you. you know, I mean, luckily, <laughs> I, I work for a great metropolitan newspaper with um, with moderators and right. editors, so it's okay. not There's you know, it's not all me. Um, and then the third column, the poor, uh, kind of constitutes everything else: uh, visits to wine regions, um, issues uh, that I want to talk about, um, personality profiles. Um, or anything else I want to say. So for, for let's say, for looking ahead at this uh, 2018, is that column, Are you do you kind of know which wines and which areas you want to be covering this year coming up? Well, may, you know, maybe not the, the year out, but, but, <laughs> but com- I'm, already, but, okay. I'm already making plans to, you know, to travel in, in February and March and April. And, and you know, I have fun. an idea yeah. of places that I'd like to go to this year if the budget permits it and other things don't get in the way. Yeah, and we were just talking before the show how you took a trip to Canada because today there was a Canada-themed food section and you wrote about the wines in Niagara Falls and in that whole region. And this this was really fascinating to me because, um, you know, so many people, first of all, they, it doesn't occur to them that you could make wine in Canada at all because it's, you know, it's the great frozen north. And, and if anything does come to mind, it's ice wine. But, right. you know, there's a, a, a really good wine region in British Columbia. There is great sparkling wine from, from Nova Scotia. And from Ontario, they're, they're, they're making really good classically oriented table wines. And, you know, there's, there's not a lot that comes into this country, but um, it's just, it's, it, it's always fascinating to me, the, the more places that are able to make wine that you would never have suspected. And certainly 25 years ago, you wouldn't have imagined. Right. Yeah, no, it's true. Let me ask you my question I, I had Last year, <laughs> last year I had on episode 163, Georgette Farkas. She's the founder and general manager of Rotisserie Georgette. And she, when I asked her to ask you a question, she said that you are uh, a frequent diner at her restaurant. Sometimes it's a, you, it's, I like that restaurant you do very some, much. You, you do some, and you know. Georgette's a sweetheart. Yeah. Yeah, so she is, and it is a great place. So, so her question was, 
she wanted to ask you a wine pairing question. And this is because this is for the holidays. She was had in her mind the Christmas time, her menu. So she wants to know, what would you pair with Rotisserie Georgette's special whole roasted items? And she has, she said she has a goose with a port <laughs> glaze. She has a, a capon with black truffle and a salmon with tarragon filling and sauce bernays. So that's her loaded question. Um. <laughs> A goose with a port glaze. Well, you know something? Uh, I I would just reach for um, the burgundy or the red burgundy or Pinot Noir with that. Um, and and that would go great also with the um, with the salmon in, in Bernays or although for the Bernays you might want a, a white, like a, a Merceau or you know, something that has like a, a really incisive um, acidity to, to go with the richness of that sauce. But but red burgundy and white burgundy go really well with salmon. Okay. And, and, and capon with truffles. Black truffle, yeah. Black truffles. <laughs> well, um, even black truffles, I, would, uh, I wouldn't hesitate to uh, some nicely aged Barolo. That's great. All right. You, you you did not you did not even hesitate on that question. You just you answered it. And you know, um I don't eat like that all the time, uh-huh. but <laughs> I <hear laughs> but you. I but I fantasize about it. <laughs> Good. Yeah. No. That's uh that's is it would be an indulgent dinner, but a delicious one. So so with with wine and trends, are you notice I mean over the years you've been writing about wine and food for a while. Are you noticing something like now that's more, you know, a trendy, something happening with restaurants and wine or? Well, um, this is a now almost a 10-year trend in the U.S. of, of people um, uh, enjoying wines that are not so powerful and alcoholic, but are are subtler, more restrained, more able to to go with food. They're thinking of wine less as a um, as a cocktail, you know, as an alcohol delivery system, and um, that's just sort of powerful and complex in a, in its own right, and something that's more complementary at the at the table and i think that's just a um a growing feeling of comfort with wine and not seeing it as something special something that uh either has to be put up on a pedestal or something that has to be worshiped as some sort of um you know magical beverage that you have to be a, a connoisseur to understand, but is, is simply just a staple of the table to be enjoyed like, like anything else on the table. And w- why do you think that had happened, what you say, about 10 years ago? Um, well, I think, you know, partly that coincides with the, um, the uh, dissemination of high-speed internet. And what does that mean? It means that um, there was a decentralization of wine critic power. You know, there Mm -hmm. were voices, there used to be, you know, just a a few voices that were heard. Um, uh, 
you know, Robert Parker or the Wine Spectator, and, and there was a sort of a one-note sound about the kinds of wines that were um, applauded and, and critically um, venerated and, and the other sorts of wines that were just uh, dismissed. And I think uh, when, when more voices began to be heard, uh, different experiences, different ideas, it, it both freed people up to experiment a little bit more and, and sort of validated different um, tastes. The other thing is that you have a, um, a generation now, a younger generation coming of age, whose parents were really into wine. And so uh, a, a, somebody who's um, my age, who, who grew up in the 70s, uh, it would be a rare thing for our parents to be wine drinkers, and it, we had to learn how to be comfortable with it uh, on our dinner tables. But now you have young people who've just seen that all their lives, and so it's no big thing. They don't have to go out and, and buy books and magazines and learn how to drink wine. Yeah, no, that all, all makes sense. So on that note, we're going to take another break. We're going to come back and we're going to play my speed round game and talk some industry news. Stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. The following program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. And we're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Eric Asimov, and it's time for my speed round game. So what this is, is I'm I, ready. Are you ready? I know. I, I think, yeah, I think you were born ready. So um, I'm going to name a couple of things, and you'd pick your preference. It's like either or situations, such as chocolate or vanilla. So here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat in. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Wine. That was a very easy one. <laughs> Big surprise. Even though you did say you you know you you do like beer and you write sure. about beer sometimes, so I like whiskey. I okay. like all kinds of things. <laughs> okay, I figured you'd go with wine on that one. How about a tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? Large plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Uh, <laughs> is that my only choice? Well, communal I have, table. What would what else would you throw in there? Um, my own table? Your own table. Yeah, that, okay. So between those, you'd rather have your own table. But, but I, I would yeah. take a communal table. And the, I, it's not that I reject a chef's counter. It's just that, I, you know, if you, if you sit in, in chef's counters or in the kitchen table, you always have to take your clothes in for dry cleaning <laughs> immediately afterwards. Yeah, or I guess another option could have been the bar. Would you prefer That's to true. sit at the bar? No, I'll, I'll take my own table. Okay. <laughs> How about tipping or all-inclusive charge? All-inclusive. Writing about food or writing about wine? I, I like to think of them as all of one piece. 
<laughs> Very diplomatic there. How about this? You're probably not going to like this one either. Red, white, or rosé? <laughs> All. All of the above. <laughs> Cheese plate or dessert? Cheese. Last one, Manhattan or Brooklyn? I'm sorry, what was... Manhattan or Brooklyn? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, I live in Manhattan. Uh, I have a son who lives in Brooklyn. We're in Brooklyn now. I'm eating tomorrow in Brooklyn, so I'll say Brooklyn. Okay. Great. I mean, some people think that, that Brooklyn's going to kick them out if they, if, if they answer Manhattan, but um, <laughs> and that one I feel like you know, I get I'm, back I'm annoyed at Manhattan too. right now. I mean, I've lived there for 35 years. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just becoming such a, 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 a dreary kind of place, and, and it's very depressing. I live in Manhattan. I still like living in Manhattan. I, I yeah. love living in Manhattan, but I'm I'm and what I'm talking about is is what's happening all with the, small restaurants, all the restaurants closing, uh, yeah. mom and pops, and yeah. and it's just a very difficult environment um, to be operating in unless you have a, a huge amount of money. Yeah, no, I I, I I figured when you said that that's what you were implying and it's true it's hard and i you know working with lots of restaurants and watching you know all these you places know that have been a, it yeah it's very hard business and people i don't even think realize it and and even like i don't know just to stay like five ten years in and a lot of places we've seen lately have been around for decades or, or a decade and are closing so it's tough um the article i had for industry news is it's talking about fine dining and the struggle of that. So this is from the Boston Globe, and the title's Feeling the Financial Heat, Barbara Lynch is Back in the Kitchen at Menton. This is by Janelle Nanon, or Nanos, sorry. Um, Barbara came on my show back in May, which if anyone wants to check out was episode 140, and it was really great to have her on. Um, and last year she, she was one of Time Magazine's most influential people on that list, which is incredible. She had her memoir come out. So, um, you know, no you get all these accolades and all this stuff, but still this article is pointing out that it's, this, this is her fine dining restaurant. Um, I think it's about eight, nine years old and it's, it's apparently not making the money that the, you know, paying the investors back. So she's back in the kitchen. Well, I think anybody in the restaurant business will tell you that fine dining, you know, at that level is the hardest yeah. part of the business. And I remember when um, uh, Steve Hansen, who used to own a whole bunch of restaurants in, in Manhattan. Yeah, that'd be our guest. And, and all the, a bunch of them have yeah, closed. Right? Yeah. Uh, and he went out of the business for himself personally a few years ago. But um, He's back. And he's back. But <laughs> I, I remember when he got three stars at one restaurant and he was like, oh, no, this is the worst possible thing that could happen to me because, uh, you know, that would uh, drive the budget up. That would, uh, you oh, know, do so all kinds of things uh, and make it less sustainable uh, of a business. And... You know what did uh, what did Danny Meyer do when Eleven Madison got four stars? He sold it. He sold it right <laughs> away. <laughs> those guys seem to be enjoying their what they're doing with those four stars. But yeah, they yeah, are. But yeah. but, but, but you know, yeah. Danny's making a lot of money selling burgers. So 
No, it's true. I mean, I mean, this article pointed out. Well, Barbara has she has a, a little empire in Boston. And, yes, and and her number nine, which I believe was the first restaurant she opened, um, is uh, like doing extremely well. A bunch of it noted how a lot of the more casual places are doing really well, and it's just the fine dining is. You know, I think it's also comes with our times that people are not as into the three-hour lunch, uh, martini lunch, as they used to call them, or um, doing tasting menus, Or, or you know? the five-hour dinner. Right. You know, I mean, I, I feel that way myself. I feel, um, you know, those sorts of commitments are are something that I want to do very rarely and only in, in so certain situations, you know, with dear friends or loved ones. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, I've been uh, often will be in a situation where I go to a, a business lunch or dinner, and there have been people who said, "Well, you know, let's go to per se," and I'm, just pop I'm on like, in. Like, are you crazy? <laughs> I've never met you before in my life, and I'm going to sit there with you for five hours. I don't think so. You know, <laughs> it's, like, it's like a first date or a fifth date or something. And, yeah, and it's. You know, it's it's really been interesting how fine dining ref, restaurants like that have have gravitated towards the tasting menu, and it's just, I mean, it's long and it's involved, and that's why I cherish restaurants like uh, Le Bernardin, which is one of the great restaurants in the world, but it's still a, a civilized dining experience where you're not. Um, committing this uh, inordinate amount of time to 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 um, something that becomes then just very long winded and an endurance contest same with um, le cuckoo it's mm. it's kind of on that same model you don't get, go there for a long tasting menu it's 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 a conventional conventionally organized meal but i think that there's a reason why over over centuries that's how we came to dine yes those are good examples well i will have to see what 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 happens with menton i wish barbara the best yeah and and, you know you know you never you never know what the the personal situation or the or the situation of that individual business is what their costs are how they've approached everything so it's you know it's really hard to interpret that particular situation. It is. This was a very lengthy article, and it did have interviews with people who have worked there and some some numbers. But then again, I, yeah, you're just I don't know from the inside, you know what it's. it's but she, but she has, really like. but she's so talented. And if you can start with that, mm-hmm. that's a good start. Oh, she's incredible. Yeah. So that was the news I had. And then the other thing before we take a break was a little announcement. So this Sunday, January twenty first is Koshan 555, which is the re- regional culinary competition, which is taking place in New York City. And this is the the all-inclusive feast they have where the chefs um, get a 200-pound heritage breed pig and they m- make it into something wonderfully delicious and they compete against each other. So um, I had on back, I was looking back on episode 109, I had on the founder of Koshan 555, uh, Brady Lowe, uh, if anyone wants to check it out. But, and if anyone wants to go this weekend, I'm going to be there. It's um, it's taking place at s- second floor, which I believe is the eventy space that 
change names versus I don't from what I picked up with the address. But if people um you can go to koshan555.com and you can get tickets there and some of the chefs involved that are competing are Brian Hunt of Temple Court, Mark Murphy of Benchmark, and Matt Abdu of Pig Beach. So it should be fun and delicious. So hope to see you there. And on that note, let's take one more break. Come back. Uh, we'll do my solo dining experience. We'll have the final question. And uh, let's stay with us. It's all in the industry and Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. So this week, it's at Heartwood. Here's the rundown. The location, Carretera Tulum, Boca Paya, Tulum, Mexico. Basically, that means off the grid. The concept, wood-fired cooking featuring meat and seafood, local ingredients, and a super relaxed setting. The chef, Eric Werner. So why did I go? because I had been in Tulum a couple years ago, and it was closed when I was there, and I really wanted to go. So this time, my experience is, I was back. I was actually staying in Playa del Carmen, which is about an hour away. But I rented a car, and I drove there, and I got into Tulum right when the sun was setting, which was lovely. Uh, I found the restaurant. It's it's just a really cool spot. It's all, all fresco outdoors, and uh, I waited a little bit on the side. They had some some seats uh, until my spot at the bar opened up, and uh, I was there in front of sitting in front of these bartenders making incredible drinks. They had the fresh juices all lined up in front of me. Um, the place just has a really cool vibe. And then what happened was the server comes over. He's carrying. He brings over. They have a large chalkboard that they move around the restaurant that has the menu written on it. So he brings over the chalkboard and ran through everything listed on it. It was about, I don't know, maybe a dozen items. And uh, I picked what I was going to have for dinner. So what did I get? I had the ensalada de langosta, which is lobster salad. I had the filet robolo, which is a snook fish. And I had corn ice cream. My take, delicious lobster salad, had a nice spicy kick. The fish was perfectly cooked. I'm not sure I've had snook before, but it's very flavorful. And the ice cream tasted like corn, and it was ice cream. So how cool is that? The ambiance. As I said, it's a very um, 
cool vibe outdoor setting. It's kind of sexy. It's smoky because everything's uh, wood-fired cooking. And there's those fun beats playing, and it just everyone seemed to be having a good time. It's also very dark and candle-lit. It's perfect for dining with friends or solo eats at the bar. Interesting tidbit, Chef Warner is originally from upstate New York and studied at the CIA. And personal fun fact, so on episode 145, I talked about going to the Chef's Club here in New York when Eric was the guest chef there. So I did have his food once in New York, and I met him then, which was great. The cost of this meal, if I converted my pesos, it was something around $75. Would I go back? Yes, I would. And their website's heartwoodtulum.com. I bet it tasted different cooked over wood on the beach in Mexico than it did in the chef's club in Manhattan. Yes, quite different ambiances. But yeah, um, I mean, his food, when it was a great experience here, but it's very different. There's something, there's something special about Heartwood and being in Tulum because it's, it's all outdoors and definitely the ambiance and ma- the setting makes, makes it beyond just what you're eating. So. It becomes part of a journey. It was, and it was a journey because it was like I'm that, I'm that girl that rents a car and drives there. <laughs> but but it was worth it. It was very worth it. So um, we're getting to the end of the show, so it's time for the final question. So next week, my guest is John DeLucy, and he is the chef and owner of Empire Diner, which reopened in April with his menu. He's also the chef and owner of Bedford and Co. And he's formerly of formerly of NYC landmark restaurants, The Lion, Waverly Inn, Crown, and Bills. He has a long history cooking and working in New York. So, Eric, what would you like to ask John? <laughs> um, well, I guess um, touching on our real estate question, I would ask him, uh, as the owner of Empire, um, what a, what's happened to um, New York's diner culture? I mean, is it just, do people just go to coffee shops now? Is it, I mean, you used to have a neighborhood hangouts and, and um, you know, they were, they were diners, they were lunch counters, and you don't see so many of them anymore. I don't know if it's a real estate issue or a changing taste issue or, um, yeah. but, you know, I, I, I want my uh, uh, gloomy, um, Nighthawk Diner, you know, to sit and stir my coffee in. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there are, I'm thinking in my neighborhood, there are still the 24-hour diners, but they're they're so brightly lit. They're not as welcoming, I don't there know, some, as yeah. <laughs> other places. And I, I, I know there used to be, um, there used to be a, a, like a real, these real, uh, old steel diners. There was one on the West Side Highway. There was one in in uh, Williamsburg, and they could never make it for for very long. I mean, they they had that look of the classic diner, and people right. would constantly try to resurrect them, and then they would die off. And diner in 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 uh, Williamsburg oh. has has yeah. stayed in business, so because that- it doesn't serve diner food, and it's very hip and yeah. cool. I mean, I haven't been there recently, but yeah, that's. I don't know. I'll find out. I mean, Empire Diner, it's a classic of in New York, and I feel like they're, you know, re- reinventing it and trying to keep it relevant, yeah. like what, what you're saying. So I will find out. See, maybe these places just need a good wine list. 
<laughs> like, like I was Diner hoping you'd say something like has. that. Yeah. I mean, do you drink wine with most all your meals? Except maybe well, not breakfast. Generally with breakfast. <laughs> and, you know, usually not um, if I'm at home working. Yeah. Um, you know, writing. I don't. But if I go out to lunch, I'll, I'll have a glass of wine. And yeah. Yeah, certainly with dinner. I don't. It's just, it's not a meal without uh, right. a little bit of wine. Yeah. And w- well, one more question. Do you have a hard time then then separating work and social? Because I, I have this. Yeah. I, I can't, pretty much. I'm going out to restaurants and something tying into what I'm doing, either with the show or with my job in PR. So... Do you find that with restaurants with wine and then something's, you know, with you're thinking of your column? Well, you know, that's the greatest thing about my job. <laughs> I don't have to separate it. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Perfect answer. Okay. Well, that's the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sherry. Um, I've, I, I, love, I love reading your columns. I love having followed your career. And I wish you much continued success. So thank, thank you. Thank you. So my guest today has been Eric Asimov. He is the wine critic at the New York Times. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Eric Asimov and at NYT Food. You can find me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My website's BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. And if you miss any of our live shows, you can always find them archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. Thanks again to Eric. Thank you to my engineer, Vitor. And uh, thank you for being part of All in the Industry. I'm Sherry Bayer, and I'll be back next week with another live show. Hope you'll tune in then. Bye. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.